We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to the latest episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today, Mark Fallon. Mark Fallon government service spans more than three decades, including serving as the Naval Criminal Investigation Service, Deputy Assistant Director for Counterterrorism, the NCIS Chief of Counterintelligence Operations for the Europe, African, and Middle East Division, and as a senior executive in the Department of Homeland Security, as the Assistant Director for Training of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And following the attacks of September 11th, Mark was the Deputy Commander of the Military Task Force established to bring terrorists to justice before military commissions in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. He previously served as the NCIS Commander of the USS Cole Task Force, overseeing the investigation of the terrorist attack on the ship in Aden, Yemen, and also worked on the investigation and prosecution of the blind Sheikh, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman. He is the author of Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and US government conspired to torture, and a contributing author and co-editor of Interrogation and Torture, Integrating Efficiency with Law and Morality. Mark, thank you very much for coming on today. Pleasure to be with you, Adam. Sure. Um, I, let's, let's go right to the uh, beginning. In the uh, beginning of the book, actually, you stated you were the tactical commander of the USS Cold Bombing Investigation. Uh, could you elaborate more how you became involved in this case? Yeah, sure, Adam. Uh, at the time of the cold attack, I was the NCIS Chief of Counterintelligence Operations for Europe, Africa, and the Middle East Division. And so my responsibility was primarily threat warnings. Mm. Uh, and that's in, you know, if, if you're familiar with the military, that's the fifth and sixth fleet area of responsibility. Uh, and, and really my, my uh, uh, jurisdiction span from Iceland all the way down through the Middle East. Mm. Um, and so the USS Cole, uh, for lack of a better term, was attacked on my watch. Um, and, and so when we decided uh, kind of how to investigate it, uh, the director of NCAS made the decision that uh, we were going to assume control of the investigation uh, in Washington, D.C. at headquarters rather than in the field, because in the field they were they were overwhelmed with other issues and other threat warnings. Uh, so the director, Dave Brandt, thought that the investigation ought to be run out of Washington. Um, and, and I worked very closely with my counterpart from the FBI, John O'Neill, at a New York, the New York division at the time uh, and FBI headquarters at the time. Uh, and so that's, uh, uh, I was once asked uh, how I got involved in all these terrorist cases, and it's because things blew up on my watch. It was um, an interesting case about the USS Cold Bombing because there was a 
previous uh, terrorist uh, incident that never came to, well, partly came to fruition, um, that wanted to attack the USS Sullivan's. And this is the Millennium uh, bombing plot, where incidentally, the USS Sullivan's was actually going to be uh, the, the initial ship that was going to be bombed. But instead, the USS Cole uh, was actually bombed in the port of Aden. Ye Yemen itself it seems to be a hotbed for Al-Qaeda as well. Um, and I think the captain of the ship of the USS Cole, I, I, his name escapes me. Kurt Leopold. Thank you very much. That's right, Kurt Leopold. He actually uh, complained about a lack of security around uh, the ship itself. Was, um, was this a problem regarding assistance to um, U.S. investigators regarding him, because I, I, I noticed even after the bombing of U.S.'s coal, John O'Neill ran into problems with Barbara Bodine, the ambassador, uh, U.S. ambassador to Yemen. So, I mean, it was there was intelligence regarding terrorists in Yemen that wanted to attack uh, U.S. US ships. Um, was this known to you at the time or? Yeah, actually, uh, and of course, Yemen is the ancestral homeland of Osama bin Laden. Right, right. Uh, and, and so uh, there was a lot of connections there and a lot of you'll see a lot of traffic uh, go through mm. Yemen over the years. Uh, yeah, uh, Adam, we actually had uh, Durham's NSA warnings, and this has been declassified as part of the USS Cole Commission uh, report. Uh, we actually had uh, intelligence about potential small boat attacks uh, and, and it was actually in the sixth fleet AOR, which is before the ship uh, transited the Suez Canal. Once the trip goes in, the, the ship goes in the Suez Canal, it becomes the fifth fleet uh, NAV sent Naval Central Command rather than Naval Europe Command, which is fifth fleet, uh, sixth fleet. And so we had threat warnings and actually we sent agents on board the ship uh, while it was still in the sixth fleet area responsibility to ensure that that intelligence was passed uh, to to uh, to the ship, uh, one of the one of the problems that the USS Cole Commission, not the investigation, not the task force, mm. the criminal investigation, but, but the commission report that looked at the overall process uh, and, and what was what the failings were, and I have I've testified for Congress about this, uh, is is that normally uh, for a ship visit, uh, an NCIS team would go advance a port. Uh, deal with the country team. Uh, they may have assets on the ground there uh, and then try to get an updated threat picture. So a decision could be made whether a ship goes into a port or not. The fact that the Yemen uh, had a fuel dolphin that wasn't a traditional port visit did not trigger or enact those type of mechanisms. Ah. And, and so, you know, we don't know, of course, whether that attack could have been prevented. However, um, we do know that uh, the USS Sullivan's was not attacked because a small boat got stuck in the, in the tide uh, and, 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 and got over, overwhelmed by water. Uh, and, and had agents been on the ground, that type of activity could have possibly been passed along because they discovered the uh, the explosives uh, mm. with Cyrillic writing on it. Uh, actually, when Al Qaeda Al Qaeda the the the, the suicide bombers fled, uh, it was Eid Il Fitr. Uh, local Yemenis thought they got a gift from God, mm. from Allah, 
uh, and then Al Qaeda had to come back and, and buy the explosives back from them. Uh, and they, they dried them out. Um, uh, they then actually, they did a very good job because they, they found another area to launch the boats in. Uh, they did trial runs to make sure that they did it. So, so from a, a, an operational perspective, uh, they learned from their mistakes and, and we lost 17 sailors on the 12th of November, 2000. You know, and, and just before that as well, this is something that was unknown to me uh, till I uh, started reading up on your profile was that you also just years prior had prosecuted uh, Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind sheikh from an Egyptian uh, radical sect called the Gamma Islamiyah. Um, and he was involved at some level with the uh, 1983 World Trade Center bombing, as well as the Landmarks bombing plot here in New York City. How did you become involved in that case? Yeah, well, that, and, and, and uh, the blind sheikh was the spiritual advisor to Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting, as, as you know, I uh, take a, a hard line against torture. I think it's an act of cowardice to start with. Right. Uh, and it's nothing any professional would engage in. Uh, but what's interesting here, Adam, is that uh, after Amor Sadat uh, was assassinated in Egypt, uh, when they rounded up all the usual sub suspects and brought them into prison and, and tortured them, uh, among those that was picked up was the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, uh, as well as Ayman Azawahiri, um, who then later went on to form Al Qaeda with Osama bin Laden. So, so, so that those acts of torture in prison, the 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 uh, family of interrogational abuses uh, that the Egyptians and other dictators used, and that the U.S. resorted to after 9/11, uh, in my view, helped further radicalize uh, people to fight against the United States, um, and. And so with the, the blind shake, um, and then, you know, it was the landmarks plot is, is we, we called it Terstop is the uh, code name, uh, Stop Terrorism, uh, is it? And, and we had a, an NCIS asset, uh, counterintelligence informant or asset who was able to penetrate uh, the blind shake uh, and his group of cohorts, right. uh, eventually selling uh, cannon fuses and remote control igniters uh, and other things planned some training uh, that the uh, FBI never went through on but had we uh, had we been able to uh, conduct some training uh, we may have been able to identify a lot of the plotters prior to uh, the landmarks uh, yeah. and the first World Trade Center uh, attack but uh, uh, we, we never did go through with some of the training um, and, and we were eventually, of course, uh, attacked with a, a, a truck bomb underneath the World Trade Center. And, and fortunately, um, it, it didn't result in toppling the towers, which was, which was their goal at that time. Had you managed to uh, meet with uh, Rahmat itself or himself or no? No, I, I, no, I did not. No, not at all. I mean, we, we, uh, we had an assets that we worked to, to infiltrate to. There was a lot of activity at the Al-Kifa Refugee Center in, in New York City, the Al-Farouk Mosque. Right, right. Um, and, and so uh, our asset, uh, Garrett Wilson, uh, mm. it's, it's declassified. He testified against uh, the blind sheikh, uh, Southern District of New York. 
so I can I can tell you about that. Many of our assets I cannot talk about. Right. They're still classified, but uh, I can I can talk about Garrett. Um, yeah, he was dealing with uh, Sadiq Ibrahim, Sadiq Ali, uh, and, and and all of those involved in the landmarks plot. They wanted to blow up the Holland Lincoln Tunnels. Uh, 26 Federal Plaza was the federal building. Uh, the United Nations, uh, they wanted to uh, assassinate Hosni Mubarak mm-hmm. when he was visiting the United Nations. So it was a sophisticated plot, and we were able to actually arrest them as they were mixing the explosives. Uh, we were able to wire, uh, have video coverage inside for their, the warehouse where they're mixing the explosives they're going to use in attacks. And that's when uh, the FBI, NYPD, Joint Terrorism Task Force swooped in, uh, arrested everyone. And, and after Garrett, the NCS asset, uh, testified against the Sheikh, he went into the Federal Witness Protection Program for his, mm. for his safety. Now, just to follow up on that, um, you, there was also another informant, Imad Salam, who was a, yeah. a former Egyptian officer who worked uh, as an informant for the New York City FBI and became infiltrated the uh, Al Farouk Mosque, became Rahman's personal bodyguard. But there was a story that he actually went to visit El Said in Osir prison, who, by the way, wasn't uh, found guilty for the assassination of Mayor Khan, but found guilty on a gun charge. Yep. And that they spoke about, uh, well, El Said Nosser told, uh, asked Imad Salem whether he knew how to build bombs. Um, was the idea for the landmarks plot originated out from El Said Nosser and that visit to prison? I, 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 don't, I don't think it was originated there. Um, I, I think this was something that was in the, in the planning for a while. And uh, that, that may have just been coincidental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, by the way, there was also a story, because I, I live in New York, I remember the story, that there was a, I, I always forget the guy's name, it's a, some radical fundamentalist that was on either the Brooklyn Bridge or George Washington Bridge that shot up a, a school full of uh, Jewish children on a bus. Um, I, I, I wish I knew that story more. I remember that incident and whatnot, but they arrested him. And... Um, I can't remember the, the, the guy's name, and uh, there goes that question I have for you. <laughs> but, okay, 9-11 happens. United States military and intelligence apparatus are in overdrive. Uh, information is awash everywhere in every station. We, we, we were on overdrive that entire summer, Adam. The system was blinking red. Right. The system, well, according right. to Teddy, yes, that's right. right. Yeah. We, 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 we anticipated... Uh, that some attack would occur uh, because there was just so much activity going on uh, from the intelligence platforms. It was just trying to determine the where or when, but it seemed pretty likely that there was going to be some attack. Never did we envision something of the magnitude of certainly the 9-11 attacks, uh, but, but certainly there was intelligence out there. And as in, you know, we know that from the presidential uh, briefings that uh, President Bush had, uh, you know, just months before September 11th about you know, possible plane attacks. And actually, if you read down that, uh, that warning, it talks about releasing the Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. That's right. That was, that was some of the demands that, uh, that they heard were going to be made. So you, you can see the core of this goes all the way back to, uh, to Rahman and Zawahiri and uh, even before uh, bin Laden. Right. And you know what? All, you bring up a good point here, and I want to expound on it now. Uh, 
throughout the late 1990s. I mean, I just did a video uh, about the, um, I, I just did a podcast actually about the Luxor massacre in 1997, where there was a leaflet placed in one of the victims' mouths about the release of Omar del Rahman. Um, but yes, I mean, Bin Laden's statements uh, actually uh, talk about uh, Rahman uh, and his release and forcing his release from prison itself and heightened tensions regarding um, terrorist uh, incidents throughout the uh, late 1990s. And Adam, and, let, let me tell you why that that's, was so important sure. because uh, Rahman had uh, religious chops. Uh, okay, so he could issue fatwas. You know, he sanctioned the first World Trade Center attack and the landmark, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, potential attacks. Uh, and, and so he gives Al-Qaeda legitimacy because of his religious connections, right? I, and that's something that bin Laden didn't have, uh, Zawahiri didn't have. And so you, you, for the fatwas, for, for it to be this religious war, hmm. you need someone with religious credibility. And that's that's one of the things that Rahman brought to the table. Right, because bin Laden was not uh, uh, authorized to issue fatwas because he was not uh, religiously literate, really. I mean, he was not uh, an imam of any sorts. In the, you know, this is a big part of the book that I had not known about and I've learned from, um, is that, and I think this is really an important issue you raise in the book, is that there was a high-level meeting in Wynwood Connecticut, I believe, uh, led by Martin Seligman, uh, the Robert A. Fox Leadership Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and that there were other distinguished attendees, such as James Mitchell, who we'll later talk about, and other names that you couldn't, uh, you, these, these names were redacted, actually, from the FBI's Behavioral Science Analysis Unit. Tell us why this meeting was so important. Yeah, well, this is important, and actually, it's it was not connected. It was in Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, oh, right here right. Yeah. in the Philadelphia suburb. Right. Uh, and, you know, right now I am the uh, interim executive director of the Center for Ethics and Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, um, where, where uh, Seligman uh, still works, right. is connected with. And, oh, wow. And, yeah, th this, this was a critical meeting because um, if you look at the manner in which, and the CIA over the years had always kind of dabbled with uh, coercion up to including in torture. Right. Okay, if you look back at the MK Ultra kind mm. of experiments, uh, back down through the Kabar counterintelligence manual, uh, down through uh, Project X uh, uh, in Vietnam, uh, the HRE, at one point, at one point, the term interrogation within the CIA had a bad name because they kept killing people during interrogation. So they said, we can't use that word anymore. We're going to call it human resource exploitation. So then they called it the HRE program. Um, and, and every time uh, they dabbled in this, they wound up killing somebody and Congress would get involved. No one would be held accountable. They say they'd never do it again. And then guess what happens? They do it again. Uh, and, and this is what happened after 9-11 as well. So, so what they were utilizing was uh, the same methodologies that the communists and North Koreans used to get false confessions from our service members. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there was a study um, uh, 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 by a guy named Albert Bitterman, who worked for the Air Force, 
a research scientist, uh, and because they wanted to know why our servicemen were giving false confessions. And so what Bitterman determined was that the manner in which the North Koreans, with the guidance of the Chinese and the Russians, uh, what they would do is they would, they would uh, create what they called the triple Ds, the, the debility, dependency, and dread. And, and so this is what the CIA was applying and later the, the Department of Defense was applying to the Al-Qaeda suspects. But it was based on, uh, uh, on what we call SEER, uh, survive, uh, evade, resist, and escape. Uh, and, and this is a program where in limited doses by, by military members, who you know it's a role-playing exercise, would capture uh, our service members in an exercise and they would subject them to, uh, in a small dosage, uh, the type of uh, interrogation tactics, the coercion, brutality, and torture type methods that a brutal adversary would use against us if they were not adhering to the Geneva Conventions. Um, and, and so this involved uh, a number of things. What, what, what Seligman had uh, beyond that were these tests on, uh, on dogs. And so Seligman would shock a dog uh, and what they found was that the dog would no longer try to avoid the shock, right? So it would learn to be helpless, right? So it's called learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. and, and so when, this, is, this is the additive. This, this, is, this, is, the, this is what uh, eventually the, the only other element outside of the normal seer type techniques uh, that in theory, Mitchell and Jesse were applying was this, this theory of learned helplessness mm. where, where the person, if you treated them like that animal would learn to be helpless. And, and if you look at the, uh, over the years, and uh, you mentioned uh, uh, earlier uh, before we were on about uh, Maria Hartwig and John Jay, we wrote about this uh, a few times. Uh, and and if, if you look at kind of the history, uh, it, it's, it goes back to this, you know, version of the Manchurian candidate. You're trying to break the person down to an infantile state with the thought that you would have an obedient person. And, and this, this is the problem. This is what they didn't understand is there's a difference between being compliant and being cooperative. Right, cooperation is volitional, right? I have to want to cooperate. You can make me comply, but you can't make me cooperate, right? That you know, you, you can make me do things, and so, so that's why that meeting uh, was so critical. Because what happened was uh, in the meeting was the person from the CIA who who brought Mitchell, who brought Jim Mitchell into the CIA who later went to work for Mitchell after Mitchell was awarded a multi-million dollar contract. Right. Uh, and, and he was awarded a contract not for inventing anything new, just for re-establishing the existing program that the CIA had used. Okay, the only difference between what they were using before and this what was really you know, this theory of learned helplessness. Right. 
And so uh, I, did a, I did a talk uh, earlier this month um, um, with, with uh, Kathy Scott Clark, who wrote the book, The Forever Prisoner. Yeah. Uh, excellent, excellent, excellent book. Highly, highly recommended because uh, in the book, Kathy writes about things that I cannot talk about. Okay, oh. and, and so what, what Kathy uh, uh, told me when I interviewed her uh, at Georgetown Law uh, earlier this month was that uh, a lawyer from the CIA Counterterrorism Center uh, was the one who brought Mitchell into the CIA Counterterrorism Center to do those, uh, I, I don't even like to call them interrogations, to do torture. Um, you know, they call it the EIT, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. They just made that word up. EIT is nothing more than an excuse to inflict torture. Right. Uh, that's what it was. But what Kathy revealed was uh, that uh, this lawyer's wife was a psychologist with the CIA in the Counterterrorism Center. I was the one who vouched for and recommended Mitchell. Um, and then uh, the lawyer uh, helped get Mitchell into his contract into the counterterrorism center. And then uh, that lawyer's wife also went to work for Mitchell. Oh. Uh, and, and so what you could see is what, what the CIA wound up doing was just taking this program that had become dormant, where they were already applying these similar type techniques, paid Mitchell and Jesson millions of dollars to restore it because a lot of the people over the years who were doing that before had retired, had gone on. So, so, so their cadre of torturers uh, had been depleted over the years because they had stopped doing it for a while. And so Mitchell and Jason were brought in uh, to reestablish this program um, and, and then train other people in the SEER techniques. Um, and, and the same people, and the people that trained them were from what's called the JPRA, Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, which is the people who do the SEER training. That's the DOD component who oversees the SEER program. The same instructors who train the CIA train the military personnel at Fort Bragg that were at, that were at Gitmo. Um, and so what you saw was a lot of people think there were these two different torture programs. It was really just one large, you know, established governmental torture program that was applied differently by different agencies. So the CIA did it differently than the Department of Defense did. Um, but, but, the, but the theory and practice was the same. Uh, that same CIA lawyer came to Guantanamo uh, and, and told uh, the military how they were doing the SEER program within the CIA. And they used that as justification to get the authorization to do within the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, there's... Um... I, I've been posting uh, redacted files from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence regarding this program. And um, one consistent finding that I've been uh, noticing and learning is that a lot of these people that have been from the CIA, from the CIA itself at Camp Green or uh, Site Blue and uh, X-Ray was that they were, these were young men with no uh, experience in, even in the torture program itself. So there was a lot of these young men that were pro. Now, why why would they why would they employ these uh, non-experienced people to extract information from high-profile terrorists? Yeah, Adam, and th th this is this is uh, really what the problem is. Obviously, uh, rather than turning to interrogation professionals, right, uh, 
people who have done uh, interrogations before, have done terrorist interrogations before, uh, the I-49 squad of the FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism mm -hmm. Task Force in New York City, NCIS personnel who are involved in the coal uh, and, and, and uh, other terrorist cases could have been turned to. The CIA could have gone to them to ask how we should do this. Uh, they turned to Mitchell and Jessen, who had no interrogation experience, had no Middle East experience, uh, had no Al-Qaeda experience, and, and what uh, your listeners ought to realize is they were psychologists in the SEER program. They were not instructors in the SEER program. Their job was to monitor the students to ensure that if they, if they got too emotionally distraught to get them out of that at, with their psychologist training and, and also to ensure that a drift doesn't occur. Uh, drift is where uh, a soldier role player would try to go, if, if they were walling somebody, would wall them harder and, and, and they would drift beyond uh, the, the parameters. And, and, and at the time, uh, the only service that was doing waterboarding was the Navy. And they stopped doing waterboarding because they found that the SEALs capitulated, right? That they gave in. And the purpose of the SEER training program within the military was to, to instill some confidence to let you know that you'd be able to get through this. Uh, and, and so what they found was the waterboard that they weren't gonna get through this because it, it is a mock execution. Your body reacts as if you are drowning. Mm. And with Abu Zabeda, it was a drowning, right? And with others, they may have been drowned as well. Uh, and so Zabeda had to be you know, brought back to life. Uh, and so this, this is the real shame of it uh, and the fact that no one was held accountable, uh, that even from a decision-making process, uh, that at the senior levels of the government, a decision was made to not go to interrogation professionals, but to turn to psychologists and to then employ methodologies that were known to produce false confessions. And so when people read my book on justifiable means, um, when they're done with it, some of them ask themselves the question that I would hope they would, if we knew that they were gonna, that this, the type of seer techniques produce false confessions, is that why they applied it to start with? Right, and Mark, so, that, so that, that's, that, right. that's the question that needs to be answered. Um, and, and, and that's why you might not turn to an agency like NCIS, uh, you know, to, to, to do this or the FBI, because they may operate with more integrity uh, than that. Unfortunately, what we've learned from the, the, the hearings at Guantanamo is that FBI agents were detailed to the CIA and the FBI was involved in the torture program, uh, as shameful as that is uh, to our nation. I can't tell you how many times I said that, even after reading your book, uh, and interviewing people like Ken Williams of the Phoenix Memo in Arizona, where I tell him, I said, you know, they, when they waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times, I said to myself, was it basically just to get information or was it to coerce uh, false confessions? Because you don't know what is true and what is false at this point. And exactly. I asked Ken, I asked, you know, I asked Ken Williams this and I'll ask you, you know, is that the reason why we haven't had a trial yet in 21 years?
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I mean, the, the, the government has shrouded uh, anything uh, related to torture or torture accountability or about torture advocates uh, under this cloak of invisibility, right? I, I wrote a piece for Spy Talk called State Sponsored Secrets mm -hmm. about state sponsored secrets and the blinding of justice, right? And so uh, for me, when I write, um, I, I just, the Supreme Court has refused to hear, hear our writ of certiorari, uh, where we are challenging uh, what we believe is uh, uh, an abridgment of our constitutional right, our First Amendment right to free speech, because everything I write has to be subjected to a pre-publication review. Uh, I currently have a, a document uh, that I'm challenging uh, in pre-publication review because it was information that was in the public domain and it was information that uh, members of the Supreme Court had said, but the government had determined that I was unable to say the same thing Supreme Court justices had sure. said. Uh, same thing with my book, um, uh, things that are part of congressional hearings were redacted, uh, things that were in the media were redacted, uh, and, and the government's position was when we tried to talk to them personally, I was represented by the ACLU and Knight's First Amendment Institute uh, was that uh, if, if I say it, uh, it has more credibility because I was there and in the know. And so the government's position is then uh, they can redact uh, you know, my memory uh, and my ability to speak out uh, against and not classified, Adam. I would never give. I would never tell you anything classified. Right. I mean, I, I'm read into programs. Uh, you know that that obligation is lifelong. I understand that. I didn't go to the press with any of this stuff. I fought from the inside, right? I was trying to stop a crime in progress, right? right? I was trying to stop the government from committing a war crime on the inside, using my chains of command, using everything in my in my, in my power uh, to try to stop it. But, but at some point, um, maybe one day, somebody will be held accountable. And, and here, here's why it, it's critically important. Uh, right now today, where there are war crimes being committed by Russians mm. right, in, in Ukraine, uh, and, and the Office of the Chief Prosecutor of Ukraine, in Ukraine wants to, wants to bring them to justice. Um, and, and, and he talks about Yuri Belosev, who's a friend of mine, who's the, the chief prosecutor for war crimes, you know, talks about uh, learning lessons from Guantanamo. We cannot do that. We cannot mm. go down the road the U.S. went down because 20 years after 9-11 and the cold attack, we have still not brought those perpetrators to justice. Mm. They are still stuck in motion hearings. Uh, about torture, who tortured, how much they were tortured, what could be disclosed about torture. Uh, and, and there are other people at Guantanamo uh, in indefinite detention without trial from a country that was founded upon basic inalienable human rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is shameful conduct, but so, so, so from a geopolitical perspective, what type of credibility do we have when we still have people at Guantanamo who've not been brought to trial and we still have people in indefinite detention without trial when we're trying to school the world and school Russia about what activities that they should be engaged in. And, and so this, this is the problem uh, when we went down that, that deep dark abyss 
and decided to utilize torture as an instrument of national policy, which is what we did. So you, you were actually given authority uh, to set up the Criminal Investigation Task Force to, in, to investigate al-Qaeda suspects at Guantanamo Bay Prison. What was the operational function of the Criminal Investigation Task Force? Yeah, let, let me talk a little bit more about that. And a lot of people think it's at Guantanamo. Guantanamo was the prison. I mean, the, the, the task force was headquartered in right. Fort Belvoir, Virginia. We had operational units in, in Guantanamo, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq. Okay. We had global jurisdiction. So our jurisdiction was to investigate, bring, bring to justice before military commissions, anyone who is or was a member of Al-Qaeda, anyone who aided, abetted, or knowingly harbored the Al-Qaeda terrorist network. Uh, that order was issued by President George Bush uh, on November 13, 2001, uh, went to the Secretary of Defense and wound up in my lab. Uh, I was detailed to uh, the Department of the Army uh, to work for Army CID, reporting directly to the Office of General Counsel, the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, to establish a task force. Now, what's interesting about this, Adam, it was it was a mission that I did not think I should have had. Yeah. Right? It was a mission I do not think that uh, the Department of Defense should have had. I think that was bad judgment on the president's part, not giving that mission to the FBI. However, that was a lawful order. Okay, under the Article II authority of the president, he can hold military commissions, right? And, and so while I disagreed with that order, it was my job to implement that order, right? When the order came down to torture, I viewed that as an unlawful order, an order that I had a duty to challenge. So, so let's talk about the task force setup was, was your question, but I wanted to make that, that, that distinction uh, clear because, um, you know, I had a mission and, you know, and when you're, when you're in government service, uh, you follow your orders as long as they're lawful. And so right. it did, right. you know, it didn't matter that I thought the I-49 squad should have had the mission. Right. Uh, you know, the mission was mine and it was in my lap and my job was to execute it to the best of my ability. Uh, and I ran that task force for two and a half years. Uh, and so what, what I did was actually modeled it after uh, what we learned from the USS Cole, right? And, and so what we learned from the USS Cole attack was, and this is how we operated in that, and that was and should have been the model after 9-11. Mm. And so what we did in Yemen was after some high level debates determined that when we had suspects and witnesses the people who are trained to do interviews and interrogations are the FBI and NCIS special agents, right? In their training, the CIA, their case officers, their intelligence officers, their job is to recruit assets, right? Now that's part of the job of NCIS as well, but we're also criminal investigators. NCIS is a hybrid organization. Hmm. You know, and if you watch the television show, NCIS, uh, I think, I don't watch the show, but I think it's all about criminal investigations. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the mission of NCS is to, is to provide the Navy and Marine Corps with criminal investigative counterintelligence and counterterrorism support. Uh, and so you have those, those three assets of the mission. Um, and, and, and so what we determined we would do there was that the interviews would be conducted by NCIS and the FBI because there was no reason to bring a CIA officer into the room. 
right? Because the questioning is an intelligence, right? The communications, the answers may be evidence, it may be intelligence. And I often equate this to people who work with computers, say everything's a one or a zero, right? And, and, and so what you wanna do is elicit the most data, the most information from the person you're being interviewed through an effective interviewing process. The results of that, those communications that come out maybe intelligence or evidence. And so the way that we modeled the call was the CIA would be, would have access to all the data, which is the intel that they could disseminate through their mechanisms. NCIS responsible for threat warnings to the Navy Marine Corps could disseminate that intelligence to the Navy Marine Corps. And then NCIS and the FBI as criminal investigators can use that information as evidence in trials, which we thought would have been in the Southern District of New York Right. Uh, some of the trials happened in Yemen, uh, but of course, during the coal attack, we never envisioned a military commissions or, or Guantanamo. Yeah. So, so that that was the model that should have been used because now you avoid having untrained people in the interview room. Now you avoid you have to worry about protecting the identity of any of the people because you know the NCS and FBI will testify in court, right? We don't need our identities protected. You know, we're federal agents. You know, we're, we're not in covered positions uh, as some of the CIA personnel were. So you, you avoid that whole, that whole aspect of compromising your identity uh, and where you bring nothing to the table. You don't have training or experience that. And, and that's what was agreed to in the coal investigation. Uh, and certainly within the Department of Defense, that was looked at as the model for future terrorist investigations. Mm. However, you know, uh, after 9-11, decisions were made out of fear, ignorance, and arrogance. And, and with the fury uh, that the country had about being attacked and how vulnerable we were, uh, unwise decisions were made, and we're still paying the price for them today. Yes, and I think a problem, and I want to get your thoughts on this next point I'm going to raise, is because this would come back and haunt you, and this is something that you fought ardently against uh, was that in, in uh, what authorized the use of enhanced interrogation techniques and this plan for, for those who are not familiar, I'll, I'll just ludicate, was that there was a plan outlined by White House counsel lawyers, uh, John Yu and David Addington on November 13th, 2001, which was to give the president full authority over the Justice Department regarding who could be labeled an enemy combatant who in turn would not be afforded protection under the Geneva Convention, and, and that this would allow the military to detain any foreigner whom the president deems a terrorist or conspired in terrorism, and that detainees who have limited means to confront their accusers, see evidence, or be present at these trials. They allowed the CIA to conduct these uh, torture methods hidden behind the wall of enhanced interrogation techniques. And uh, yeah, this this memorandum is so huge because it allowed, it gave the authority for the CIA to conduct these terrorist methods, which basically you fought against. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, it was on the 17th of September, uh, 2001, when the president issued a, it's called a memorandum of notification. Hmm. I, I mean, movies, a finding, right? Where the president kind of, it's a covert uh, order that the president uh, gave that allowed the uh, CIA to establish what became the RDI program, Rendition, Detention, Interrogation. Uh, they had some 
limited experience in renditions, kidnapping. They had no legitimate experience in detention operations, uh, and they had no legitimate experience in interrogation. Uh, and so this RDI program was established. However, um, they didn't look to do any of the interrogations until Abu Zubaydah was captured. Hmm. And when Abu Zubaydah was captured uh, and gave information uh, that Mukhtar, uh, KSM, uh, was responsible for what was called the planes operation, that's the 9-11 attack, the, uh, the, the uh, the uh, cold attack was called the boats operation, right? So they had a planes operation, they had a boats operation. Um, and, uh, and so it was uh, after um, FBI agents were able to elicit uh, from Abu Zubaydah uh, that KSM was responsible for uh, the planes operation uh, that uh, Director Tennant, uh, CIA Director Tennant, uh, was in, enraged that it was FBI agents who got that information because he wanted the CIA mm. to save the day. Uh, and, and, and part of why I think you wanted that and part of why I believe he fought so hard for the mission was to cover up the fact that they withheld information from the NCS and FBI investigators investigating the coal attack uh, about the Al Qaeda summit in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, because right, right, right. we were following the money uh, that left Yemen with a guy named Khalad, uh, a one-legged uh, Al Qaeda member, um, and, and and so that information uh, never was given to the investigators uh, because had we got that information, uh, we would have followed the funding, exactly. uh, and and two of those people from. Uh, that Kuala Lumpur meeting uh, went on to San Diego for flight training. Uh, they weren't smart enough to get the flight training, uh, so they became muscle hijackers. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, when you can't say, you know, you could have prevented it, but I think we really would have had a fighting chance. Uh, if you look at the manner in which that we would have conducted that investigation, uh, there's at least a likelihood uh, that the September 11th attacks could have been prevented uh, had that information been shared. Uh, and that is part of the 9-11 Commission report. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, that was uh, a serious uh, mistake and blunder uh, by the CIA. Uh, and, and, you know, my, in my view, uh, that, that cost 3,000 lives. Sure. And those two men were Khalid al-Bidar and Wafa Hasbi. That's correct. Um, and now you saw the writing on the wall because you actually, white. I mean, you had White House officials actually visiting Guantanamo Bay. Now, in chapter six of your book, you do write that you, along with Ralph Blinko and Mike Gels from the Behavioral Science Team, you actually went down to Gitmo on June 9, 2002, to try and quell the growing enthusiasm for the seer based techniques in favor over successful report interrogation. Um, why was the CIA and White House so fixated on harsher torture methods, enhanced interrogation techniques, and not the successful report building relationship that you outlined with the FBI? Yeah, there's even a little more to that story that you'd be interested in, Adam. So, so I was actually, the, 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 you mentioned how the president 
had the authority to try Al Qaeda suspects, and he did. Uh, and the order to me uh, said that. Uh, and so what I would have to do uh, for any of those that were brought to uh, trial in the, in the early days, uh, uh, Hamdan and Bin Laden's bodyguard and Hicks and those others, mm. um, I had to do what's called the reason to believe determination. Uh, and so our task force, our, our first responsibility was to conduct a preliminary investigation to determine if there is reason to believe, we call them RTBs, everything the government's an initial, right? Uh, a, a reason to believe that the person that we have in custody uh, falls under the provisions of the president's order where the president said he could determine who goes to military commissions. And so I would have to sign an RTB and it'd go through interagency to wind up on the president's desk and the president would say, I agree with Fallon or I don't agree with Fallon because I signed all of them. Uh, and, and any ones that I signed, he, he did uh, bring, you know, he did say, yes, they, you're right. Uh, the preliminary investigation did reveal they were uh, a member of Al Qaeda. Um, and, and, and what was interesting about that was uh, I was at the Pentagon uh, about to, uh, to, I was talking to them about uh, reason to believe for, for Ibn Sheikh Alibi. Ibn Sheikh Alibi was in custody uh, in Bagram, and he was the emir of the Caledon training camp. And I thought, here was a guy that would be a perfect candidate for military commissions. He was a emir of a, of a, a, a Al Qaeda training camp, uh, training uh, you know these would be terrorists. Uh, well, while I was up there at that meeting, uh, they said that a group of lawyers were going to Guantanamo to get an update on the status of the cases. And I said, wait a minute, this is actually ludicrous because the cases and the case agents are in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, right? The, the investigators, we, while we had investigators at Gitmo, the case agents themselves were in the Washington DC metropolitan area. And I was the special agent in charge, the chief investigator for Al Qaeda for military commissions. If you want a status and update on the cases, you come to us. You don't go to the, it would be like uh, if you want, if a US attorney, someone you wanted a, uh, an update on a, a federal investigation, going to the prison, going to a federal prison and asking the, the, the warden what the status of the case is, right? It was, it was so crazy to think of. I, I was like, what? This makes no sense. Who is going to Guantanamo what lawyers are going to Guantanamo? And, and they reeled off a bunch of names I never heard of. They said, Alberto Gonzalez. I'm like, who is Alberto Gonzalez? He's President Bush's lawyer. I'm like, what? Uh, David Addington. Who's David Addington? He's Dick Cheney's lawyer. I was like, what? You gotta be kidding me. Who else is going? Uh, Michael Chertoff, Deputy Attorney General said, what? I mean, they meet once a week with, with, with us about the cases. The, uh, this makes no sense. Who else is going? Uh, Jim Haynes, the Office of General Counsel for Donald Rumsfeld. That's who I reported to. I'm like, this is crazy. So I said, I got to get down there. I got to get a plane. Sure. Uh, and so I ordered a plane. And Ralph Blanco didn't make that trip. He was still back at headquarters. But Mike Gellis did. Uh, and, and, and we went down. Uh, and my whole goal was to say, one, you know, what are you doing? If you, want, if you want an update on cases, this was September 25th. 24th, 25th of 2002, uh, I'm the guy to get it from. 
as the chief investigator, not General Dunleavy, who's in charge of intel, not investigations, uh, and not General, General Bacchus, who's in charge of the prison. So, uh, you know, the, the whole thing was a ruse. And so, um, you know, what my boss, Colonel Britt Mallow, he was a commander, I was a deputy commander. He said, yeah, we got to get down there. We, we, we got to derail them. And, you, and, and we knew that they wanted to use the same techniques that the CIA was using. And so I was going down there to say, one, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense because it's not going to elicit accurate, reliable information. You're going to get false confessions. You're going to get fabricated uh, information. You're, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get garbage. It's, it's, it's not reliable intelligence if you do that. Uh, and I was iced out of the meetings. The generals down there would not let me meet uh, with, with these people. And so that was a, uh, that, that was a seminal point uh, in my mind when I saw the most senior lawyers of the government, all who were read into the uh, EIT, the Excuses to Inflict Torture program, that I was not. Right. And so it never in my wildest imagination, Adam, was that the government would have sanctioned this. I mean, I actually, when I saw what they're doing, thought it was some rogue CIA personnel in some small unit. Uh, and I was trying to stop the Department of Defense from going down the, this road that I knew would result in congressional hearings. I mean, I, I knew, you know, there was no way. I mean, I have my own staff of lawyers. You know, we looked at the Convention Against Torture, we looked at the U.S. Code, looked at the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Um, this was illegal. These were war crimes that we were going to be committing. Uh, and so I felt it was a duty to try to stop them from happening. I couldn't stop the CIA from doing what they did at Black Sites. However, once they came to Guantanamo, that's a Navy base. That's my jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And so once they started getting the DOD involved, now I had a duty and obligation to try to stop that. You know, I, I did it because it was my job. And, and so that's why I took such a hard stand is I felt it was my responsibility as the chief, the government chief investigator for terrorists for trial for military commission. I mean, I was trying to execute President Bush's order to bring terrorists to justice, hmm. knowing that if they went down that road, it would interfere with the president's order to bring terrorists to justice. There was no way you could torture someone and then bring them to a legitimate trial. Uh, and so I was just trying to do my job. You, you, as if you didn't have enough headaches, you also mentioned in the book that you voiced with great concern about Jeffrey Miller, the commander of advanced torture at Guantanamo Bay, that he brought with him the Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld's April 16, 2003 policy guidelines for Guantanamo to serve as the model for the command-wide policy he recommended they establish. What you know? What what was it about Jeff? What had, what had happened here? Yeah. So so what happened, Adam? This is the inside baseball. Um, so General Dunleavy, Michael Dunleavy, a reservist who was a SIGINTER, Signals Intelligence uh, person, reservist was a, a family court judge in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, wanted to utilize uh, the SEER uh, techniques of waterboarding. Against detainees, and that's who that's who that team of lawyers um, met with was Dunleavy. Uh, we were able to convince the army leadership uh, that Dunleavy was um, 
unbalanced. All right, he was, he had no command uh, decorum, no command presence. He was dangerous in my view. Uh, and I wrote in the book that, you know, people were calling him cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There was actually, somebody brought me a box of Cocoa Puffs in my office and it stood on my bookshelf. And if they came in the story, they just point to the Cocoa Puffs box. And I knew it was gonna be a Dunleavy story uh, about some wacky event he had. He was telling people he's number three Al Qaeda's hit list behind the president and the secretary of defense. And, you know, he, he, he was just, uh, he was causing problems down there and I was able to go back to the G2 of the army and, and to the general counsel of the army uh, and say, listen, uh, you know, he has a separate task force than me, right? He's responsible for intelligence. I'm responsible for criminal investigations. However, what he's doing is gonna impede and, and corrupt my investigations if he goes on. Well, they, he was relieved. However, only after he sent up the request to do the SEER methodologies uh, on DOD prisoners and Jeffrey Miller was brought in to implement those policies. Uh, and, and so uh, unfortunately for me, um, I, I, I was so ecstatic that Dunleavy was relieved and I was so happy that a army general who was a, uh, would come in, who had a great reputation. Uh, and and uh, he met with Donald Rumsfeld. And then he came down to meet with me at Fort Belvoir to give him a brief, because you know I didn't work for him. We had competing missions, right? His mission was to gather intelligence. Hmm. My mission was to, to conduct criminal investigations. What they did was when they eliminated uh, Dunleavy was, and there was another general down there, General Bacchus, an army uh, MP. Uh, they relieved Bacchus early before his tours ended. I actually thought that I was gonna be relieved as well and, and Rip Mallow were gonna be relieved too. Yeah. Uh, I think that may have created too much of a political stink. Uh, so they didn't do it. Uh, but what they did was they combined the JTF-160 task force that General Bacchus had as the custodian for prisons with the JTF-170 task force, which Dunleavy had, which was to gather intelligence so that they can create the conditions of confinement from the CIA's program. Because you had to be able to establish the conditions that created debility, dependency, and dread for, is the theory of the program, right? And so you, if you didn't control the prison population, you couldn't do that. And, and so, uh, I didn't realize that. So when I first met Miller, November 27th, 25th, 27th of 2002, I think it was 27th, uh, it was when I finally realized that the Department of Defense was going to implement a state-sponsored torture policy. Um, and uh, I can tell you, I was apoplectic. Was I? I, I was unbelievable to me. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I kind of figured the CIA would would get wacky because over their their years they always did. All right, the, you know they were above the law, totally unaccountable for whatever they did. Uh, they killed people in the past and they got away with it. So it didn't surprise me 
that it actually it surprised me the depths of depravity when, when it finally came out in the torture report, the, the SISI Senate Select Committee Intelligence uh, Report. Uh, I never envisioned the depths of depravity of the program until that came out. Uh, but but uh, uh, it didn't surprise me that the CIA was going to get abusive, right? It shocked me that members of the military, uh, that the Department of Defense uh, would sanction it, its torture. I mean, it's so against uh, the core uh, of what our training is. Uh, and, and, you know, we trained all of our personnel when they came into CITF, and I personally trained them, and I gave them a briefing. No one, no one went into the box. No one did an interview interrogation until they had our training. Uh, and what we used in our training was the, the Nuremberg example. Hmm. And we said that in Nuremberg, junior officers were tried. The, the defense that you were following orders is not a defense if the order is unlawful. And so we told our people this, you cannot follow an unlawful order, even if it's from us, even if it's from me. You have a duty and obligation to challenge that order if it's unlawful. Uh, and so, so that's how instilled it was in us, uh, you know, about uh, obeying that and having some dignity and a code of conduct uh, and everything else. It was so ingrained in our training because I, I had been with the Department of Defense since 1981 mm -hmm. and I left the Marshal Service to become a, an NCS special agent uh, and had worked around the world, frankly, with CIA, uh, you know, in the United States, NCS uh, coordinates their counterintelligence activity with the FBI and overseas we do with the CIA. I mean, I worked with them you know, for years. I've been assigned to the Philippines. I've been assigned to Italy. Um, uh, I worked throughout the world. Uh, and, and so that was really the, the, the shocker, Adam, uh, because the same day that I met with him, uh, Southcom, the, the U.S. Southern Command, which is what Gitmo reported to, forwarded up Dunleavy's uh, request to use the SEER techniques at Guantanamo. Uh, and so uh, that should have been where lawyers should have stopped it, mm. right? And, and the lawyers rubber stamped it. Everyone would rubber stamp it because they were told that Rumsfeld approved this stuff uh, until I got to Alberta Moore, the general counsel of the Navy, uh, who finally said, uh, actually, what he told me was, not knowing any of this was, was sanctioned, not knowing the president was, he said, the presidency's at stake here. He was appointed, you know, he was a Republican appointed by President Bush yeah. to the general counsel of the Department of the Navy. And he was like, the presidency's at stake here. We've got to stop this. If anybody finds out that we're going to be engaged in war crimes, I mean, we could lose the presidency. I mean, you know, so, so you know, Alberto Mora kind of restored my faith uh, in presidential appointees. I mean, he is one of my heroes uh, because as I was... As I mentioned earlier, I mean, I used my chains of command. Uh, you know, I went up my uh, chain of command to the Office of Secretary of Defense. And of course, they, they fell on deaf ears because they were, they were the ones who wanted to do it, right? Jim Haynes, uh, the general counsel in Rumsfeld wanted to use these techniques. Uh, I went back to my army chain of command because I was de detailed to the army. And that chain of command didn't disagree with me uh, that it was improper, didn't disagree with our interpretation that it was unlawful, but said, we're on record opposing it, don't worry about it. I didn't feel that was enough. So I went back to my NCIS chain of command. And actually the reason I did it, Adam, was uh, I thought we were going to kill Mohammed al Qatani, mm -hmm. uh, prisoner 63, who likely would have been the 20th hijacker. 
uh, on the flight that it was the only flight that didn't achieve its mission, right? That didn't that didn't hit. It would have been the capital for that flight. It it crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, when the uh, when when the passengers were able to uh, over overtake the uh, the muscle hijackers and get into the cockpit. Um, but so uh, I was reviewing his interrogation logs. JTF 170, JTF Gitmo uh, did not know uh, that I was getting access to the logs where I was reading exactly what they were doing to him uh, and reading his medical reports. And I and, and at the same time, around this time, uh, we are killing prisoners in Afghanistan, right? So I'm getting reports uh, about prisoner deaths in Afghanistan. And, and I went to the director of NCS and said, we've got to do something. We are about on the brink of killing a prisoner in U.S. custody at a naval installation. And the director of NCS, Dave Brandt, went to Alberta Mora um, and, 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 you know, first and Alberta Mora said, yeah, let's meet. And that's when, that's when Ralph Blenko, Mike Ellis and I met with Alberta Mora for the first time uh, and, and laid the program out. And when he looked at the legal uh, justification from Diane Beaver, Blair Cotano, he said, this is, this is, this is totally improper. This isn't even the right legal readout. The, 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 this, it's totally wrong. Uh, they were aghast. The, the senior, we sit down with the most senior lawyers uh, within the Navy Marine Corps, uh, and none of them could believe uh, the legal interpretation down at JTF uh, 170 uh, that, that tried to intimate uh, that, that this could be somehow lawful. The more, I think, shocking aspect was that you just thought that this would be a localized event in Cuba, but then you started noticing that the CIA was opening black sites in Poland and Iraq and Afghanistan. And you also I, mentioned- I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> right. Well, you, you do mention in the book that in 2003, even the British, <laughs> even the British special forces were complaining to their superiors about the torture methods of Americans, of detainees in Iraq at the time. Um, I, I think I join you in your, uh, in your uh, like, uh, this is what audacious on the part of the CIA and to the extent of the White House, Bush White House, that they would be so open and so blatant in the use of torture and then to try and um, defend these actions, it just, boggles like the mind like rationale it's like in, it, beyond me because i heard stories um like mustafa hasawi for for example that they anally raped him with a uh, brillo type device and he's got to sit on a pillow in um in guantanamo during his hearings i'm like what was the sense of all this yeah it, it, it was uh retribution it was fury it was it, it was uh, we, we became the adversary that we feared, mm. right? We, you know, and, and this is, this is what happened. We, we look at our failed wars, our lost wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and, and the problem was we weren't greeted as liberators because Jeff Miller went and the, 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 the same tactics became part of SOPs, standard operating procedures. Um, what happened was when they were writing the procedures for uh, Afghanistan, uh, they came to Guantanamo and Guantanamo told them about the SEER methodologies. And, and so Carolyn Wood, 
uh, an army captain uh, wrote those into the SOPs for Afghanistan uh, under, the, under the thought that the Geneva Conventions didn't apply. When she was later transferred to Iraq, where the Geneva Conventions clearly did apply, uh, even though they really applied in Afghanistan as well, uh, but, but when it was clear that we were supposed to obey the Geneva Conventions, she just took that old interrogation SOP, blew the dust off it, changed the title, changed a couple words, and, and implemented that. Uh, and and when, when, when Jeffrey Miller went to Abu Ghraib, uh, he actually brought, uh, his team brought dog leashes with them. Uh, he, you know, that was, uh, and, and so you look at the fact that, uh, look at the tens of thousands of people, Afghanis uh, and Iraqis uh, that were subjected to this family of interrogational abuses, right? We, we know what it looks like from the Abu Ghraib photos, right? The photos weren't, haven't been released in the other sites, but, but just, just imagine the amount of people who saw that, whose family members were part of that. Uh, and we wonder why uh, that uh, we had uh, people turn against us. Uh, at, the, at the height of our deaths uh, in Iraq, um, the number one and number two reasons that foreign fighters from other countries came to the battlefield was Abu Ghraib and mm -hmm. Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. And this all leads right back to, to Jeff Miller. And this all leads right back to the CIA coming to Guantanamo and spreading and spreading the torture program. My final question, Mark, is um, what are you doing today? And what, what, what have you been doing uh, uh, currently? And, and a two-part question would be, what would you like for the, your book, Just Follow My Means, to accomplish? Yeah, well, I, I think, I'll, first, I'll answer that one first. I think Unjust Fall Means is a leadership book. Uh, I think it's a book that anyone who, who's in a leadership position uh, ought to take a look at uh, about uh, kind of the challenges that you may face uh, when you have to confront, uh, you know, someone above you in something that you legitimately think is wrong. Right. And, and anyone involved, you know, uh, in a counterterrorism investigation operation ought to read it's part of American history. I mean, I wrote it because it's a story that needed to be told, um, like it or not, I'm part of history. Right. And, and so I, I at least wanted the, the, the public to know because the CIA uh, made a concerted effort to manipulate the public uh, in the manner in which that, that, that and they still do it today. And that's part of why I fight redactions. Uh, and, and so I think the book ought to serve uh, for anyone who's, who's in this capacity uh, and needs to really uh, lead during crisis. And the crisis could be in business world or something else when you're under different pressures, but, but kind of what it takes to kind of get through it. Uh, and believe me, it wasn't fun. It wasn't something I asked for and it wasn't easy. Um, but, you know, I, I got through it. It was it tested my mettle. And it was a professional challenge of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I know I stood tall. And as I said, I ended my book, I did my job, right? I, I, did, my, I did my job. Um, and, and so what I'm doing today is uh, I still speak out loudly and proudly uh, about my government service, uh, about how it ought to be, uh, about the fact that we take an oath to protect and defend the constitution 
uh, Al-Qaeda took an oath to, to Osama bin Laden, right? They pledged buyout to people. When you're in government service, you don't. I didn't take an oath to Donald Rumsfeld. And that's what I have told them in the Pentagon when they told me torture was lawful. Donald Rumsfeld can't make law. And I didn't pledge buyout to Donald Rumsfeld. I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America. What is embodied in that document, what that thing stands for. Um, and, and so that's, that, that's what I continue to believe today. No one told me that I know, should no longer protect and defend the Constitution. Uh, and Roosevelt wrote a, a very famous uh, speech uh, uh, at the Saban in France. Uh, and it's, it's not the critic that counts. Everyone talks about, you know, marred by sweat and this and, you know, if, if you read through uh, to the, to the uh, later lines uh, in that, uh, Roosevelt talks about the responsibilities of citizens in a republic and how if the, the, if the level uh, uh, that, that a high tide raises all boats, Right. And, and so I think that citizens and I encourage citizens uh, to speak out. And so I was on a, uh, a 12 person steering committee uh, that developed the Mendez principles on effective interviewing. Um, and, and it started with Juan Mendez, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture uh, in 2016. Uh, he delivered a thematic to the United Nations and I was a special advisor to Juan helping them prepare that. Um, and what that thematic said was to the UN General Assembly, and I spoke at the General Assembly in 2017 um, at, at a side event there uh, with the Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights and others in the audience uh, about what we need to do is uh, we now have science uh, that shows us unequivocally and this is what we write about in the interrogation and torture volume of Oxford University Press. Um, we now know that rapport-based methods do produce more accurate, reliable information, less false and fabricated information, right? When I was arguing my points back in 2001, I didn't know the science. I didn't have the science, right? I was arguing that based on my experience, Right, based on my working the blind shake case, the terror stop operation, based on my career in NCIS, based on the USS Cole investigation, based on all I did, this is what I believe to be the case. This is what I feel in my heart is the case. And you have the CIA saying the same thing. We're getting good information. We just can't tell you about it because it's all classified, right? So, so, so I was fighting you know, the, the, the shadows. Now we have the science. And so what the Mendez principles uh, says is that anyone who involves in interrogation ought to have training. And the training ought to be based on science, right? And, and that, and, and, and there, there's, there's six basic principles and I, I could send you the details if, if, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but right now what we're looking for uh, countries to do and some are, and we look for bodies United Nations to do is adopt the Mendez principles on effective interviewing. Uh, because what they will do is, if employed, is ensure that what we are getting is accurate and liable information to protect our national security and to protect the public safety. And that we will do so in, in adherence to universal human rights standards. 
because they are consistent, right? The developing of rapport is consistent with human rights standards. And even if you look at policing today, we've lost trust in policing community, right? They lost trust in police. Part of that is we're still using coercive tactics in our interrogations in the United States, right? And so we need to evolve. We need to evolve to science-based methods and some have. The Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which you mentioned I was the CIF director training of, now teaches the scientific methods. My old organization, NCIS, has come out with a policy. We will only teach, and we will, from now, from this day forward, we will only utilize science-based methods in our interview interrogation practices. We need more agencies to do that, right? We, we need more people to take the lead, and you will see a trickle-down effect because you will get more accurate reliable information, but you will also build community trust, right? There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis right now on use of force, right? And de-escalation uh, during the arrest. Well, what happens if you're re-escalating in the interrogation room, right? That de it's a continuum. You need to de-escalate de de throughout that process. And, and that's why I'm so proud of what's going on in Ukraine is Yuri Belosov, the chief prosecutor for war crimes is trying to implement the Mendez principles on effective interviewing to ensure that they get the best intelligence for their national security and they get the best uncorrupted evidence for their cases and that they don't, they, they, and they avoid the pitfalls that we have at Guantanamo where we still have yet to bring people to justice. Two decades in the fourth administration, four, four presidential administrations, and we have yet to bring people to justice at Guantanamo Bay. Mark Fallon, Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and U.S. government conspired to torture. Thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure being with you today, Adam.